So, when we last met, this sermon I think today, this, this, these passages today, I think are, um, they're almost like a part two to, to what I was talking about last time. So if you were here uh, and you heard me speak, I talked a little bit about the cost of following Jesus. So what we know about Jesus is that Jesus calls people and people respond to that call. And following Jesus looks different for different kinds of people. And so we, we, we looked at that and we said, what makes people say yes to Jesus? And potentially, what makes people say no? Now, in the first sermon, of course, uh, the people we, we were looking at, all of them said yes. Um, and today, we're going to start to see that there are people who do say no. Um, and this is a, a, an important feature of understanding and, 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 and knowing what it is that makes up the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is both the people that say yes and the people that say no. So if you've heard me speak before, you've, you've probably seen this diagram and you're probably sick of it, but I'm going to keep saying it. Because I, I think repetition helps people learn. And I think this is a very important thing for you to understand when you approach the Bible. The Bible is locked in time. The words don't change. Yes, we update the translation from some time to time. Yes, we discover manuscripts we didn't have before. But it is frozen in time. And so there is a world behind the text. That's the world that gave rise to the text. There is the world of the text, which is the stories and the features of the stories. And then there is the world in front of the text. And that's the world you and I live in uh, right now. And the reason that we come together every week and we gather around this book, the Bible, is because we believe that God is at work in the Bible. We believe it is inspired, that it has authority. And it also has a way of pointing us to God's work in the world. So we are, we are followers of God and we see God at work and we see God at work in the text and we see God at work in our world. And we use both of those to try to orient ourselves, to do some discernment and to be better followers of Jesus. So what is the world behind the Gospel of Luke, because that's been the book we've been focused on uh, for, um, for this whole sermon series. Now, we've spent enough time on what gave rise to the book of Luke that I don't need to go very deep here, but the role of the Gospels themselves, so that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, play a specific role in Christian community, and that is to give us orderly accounts of what Jesus said and did. They help us understand. And while they harmonize and agree, each author has a specific angle that they see Jesus from. And so what we've been doing in this sermon series is been looking at the specific passages that are unique to the book of Luke and reflecting on those. So 
Why does this book exist? Well, there's a Christian community, and they needed a, an orderly, written-down account of the works of Jesus. And that is what we are handling right now. So now let's turn our attention to the world of the text. What is going on in today's passage? Well, there's a couple of things that we want to note. This, is, this collection of stories right here in chapter 17... And if you want to pop open your device, we're going to be looking at chapter 17, starting at verse 11. But this collection of stories is meant to uh, be a pivot point in the Luke account. We're kind of at the middle, and we're drawing to a close. So you'll notice that Jesus has spent most of his time sort of in that Galilee area, okay? He is not near Jerusalem. And now we're about to see that Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem. And we know, because we've, there's, uh, we, we've seen this movie before, we've perhaps handled this book before, we know that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that is where he is crucified. So Jesus is turning not just his ministry, but his own body toward his own crucifixion. And when I read this story, just here in a few minutes, I want you to pay particular attention to the specific location of today's story. It's geographic location. Now, Luke is disguising some details because also what's fascinating about this story is it's, it's a, a literary trap. The readers are going to get caught by this story. And so Luke is keeping some details secret at the beginning of the story that he reveals at the end. And, uh, and where this is taking place is in a borderland town between Samaria and Israel. We'll get into why that's significant in a minute. But just pay attention to the idea of being in a borderland. A borderland where there are contrasts between a certain kingdom and another kingdom. A certain way of life and another way of life. Because these contrasts are going to be what we focus on this morning. The contrasts between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom and the kingdoms of earth. So let's read this passage together. This is Luke uh, 17 verse 11 and onward here. Now... On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And when he saw them, he said, go, show yourself, yourselves to the priests. And they went, and they were cleansed, meaning they were healed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And here's Luke's spring of the trap. And he was a Samaritan. We'll get into that, why that matters in just a minute. Jesus asked, were not ten cleansed? 
Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to praise God except this foreigner? And then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. All right, so we're going to do a deep dive into some contrasts here that are going to tell us a little bit about what citizenship in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Because what Jesus' ministry is here to do is introduce this thing he calls the kingdom of heaven and to inaugurate this thing called the kingdom of heaven. And guess what? He is the king of the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus' ministry is meant to point us toward to tell us about and to call us to respond to. All right, so let's look at one particular contrast, and that is true healing versus partial healing. So as I mentioned, Luke is setting a trap in this story for his readers. He deliberately holds back some of the details to make his point. He wants the reader's prejudices against Samaritans to be exposed. He doesn't want you to prejudge these characters. He wants them just to be ten fellas. Now, the challenge for us here in 2022 is that we don't have the same prejudices that the original readers would have had. Because for most of us, if I say the word Samaritan, you probably think of a good person, right? Like there's the good Samaritan clause, and there's, when we think of someone who is a Samaritan, we think of like a person who's a good person, right? But that is not the association that the original readers would have come to. And another very quick little detail for us to pay attention to, it's weird that these men ask for mercy. It's a weird request. If you have leprosy, you're supposed to cry out, unclean, unclean, to anyone who is approaching you. You were supposed to do that because it's a communicable disease and people with leprosy lived outside of community and they were outside of community because that was for the protection of the broader society. And so you would say, unclean, unclean, so that someone approaching you would not get sick. Does that make sense? I'm not saying it's pretty, but does that make sense from a raw public health standpoint so sometimes people who uh, had leprosy they would ask for money that would make a bit more sense they didn't say to Jesus unclean unclean and then he, he they, they cried out to him master have mercy on us they didn't necessarily ask for money because well this would be something people with leprosy needed. Because they lived at the edges of society, because they, people were afraid of them, because they were often even seen as deserving their lot in life. They have leprosy because they're a bad person. That was another 
very common viewpoint. Not only is it sad that you have leprosy, but you deserve it because you've done something wrong. Thank God we don't blame people for their own problems anymore. We've, we've evolved as a society, and that never happens to us, right? And if you are at the edge of society, and you are in uh, you, are, you are incapable of participating in society. You can't do business with people because people don't want to do business with you. You are constantly at risk of starvation. You are in abject poverty as a person with leprosy. And you are treated as subhuman. So when they are saying, have mercy on us, they are asking Jesus for something. And it wouldn't be surprising had they said, please uh, give us money. That, that was something that you would actually hear leprous people saying. Luke doesn't really make it clear what they are asking for. Are they asking for Jesus to notice their plight? Are they asking an authority figure to bear witness to the fact that they are ground up in a debilitating social order that made them to blame for their own condition? A social order that says they deserve everything that's happening to them because they're bad people. That's also another possibility when they say, have mercy on us, but they want Jesus to see what is happening. Luke doesn't really make it clear what they're asking for. And my best guess as to why that is, is because it's probably all of those things. It's probably all of those things that he is putting inside of their request. Because they need help at every level of their life. And they saw Jesus as someone who could do something about the damage and the torture and the sadness of every part of their life. And then the final strange fact is that they called Jesus master. They could have called him teacher. They could have called him rabbi. They could have just called him, hey, you. But they called him master. And they obviously, because they are, they, they are people with leprosy, they're not able to travel. So how did they hear about Jesus? They would be outside the general rumor mills. They, they probably didn't have cable or an internet connection. So how do they know that Jesus is the master? Well, I think Luke is suggesting here that perhaps Jesus' identity wasn't just a, a fact that it spread through a rumor mill, but it was being revealed to them by God. That there might be some kind of pre-existing connection between these people and God. And that they were getting that information not from their neighbors, but directly from God. So, 
What we are seeing here is that the kingdom of, uh, that Jesus wants to establish stands in, in stark contrast to the debilitating social order of the kingdoms of this world. And there's a few features I want us to pay attention to here. First and foremost, the kingdom of heaven deals directly with human need. At a fundamental level, the kingdoms of this world failed these men. Not only had it failed to cure their disease, but it also failed to cure their isolation, their disenfranchisement, and their poverty. The kingdoms of this world make a bad situation about a thousand times worse. The kingdom of heaven, on the other hand, is interested in the whole person. Jesus' work is not simply limited to healing the individual body and mind and spirit, but also healing the social order that imprisons and tortures whole categories of people. The sad reality is that this isn't just a story about 10 men with leprosy. This story would have been repeated all over planet Earth. And that Jesus and the kingdom of heaven are about to come into direct confrontation with a world that sees that as fine. Humans rarely see the whole person. Social systems rarely see the whole person. They see physical characteristics. They see skin color. They see height and weight. They see your biological sex. They categorize you. They make assumptions about you. They sort you based on what they see. And human kingdoms rarely see the whole person, let alone address the needs of a whole person. And what we are seeing says Jesus is inaugurating a kingdom, beginning a kingdom that deals with a whole person. Another thing that Luke is pointing out here is that Jesus himself is the king of the oppressed. Jesus' responsiveness to these men and their initial responsiveness towards him tells us a lot about what kind of king Jesus is. Jesus calls his sheep and they respond to his voice. Lots of people ignore Jesus even though he speaks directly to them. Citizens of heaven, on the other hand, recognize and submit themselves to him. Now, sometimes the reason that people don't hear the voice of Jesus is because they don't want to. The social order that they are a part of works for them and they really don't want it to change. So pay particular attention to who responds to Jesus and who sees Jesus at work. Pay attention. Pay attention. Because the point Luke is trying to make is that this isn't just a product of who Jesus is. It's also a product of where we find ourselves 
where we are born, and then what we are willing to see. Am I making sense so far? All right, let's move on. Let's talk about seeing versus not seeing. So, you'll notice that they all choose to do what Jesus asked. They left and went to present themselves to the priests. Now, this might sound weird. Why are you going to a priest? Well, (laughs) believe it or not, this was actually a fairly central role that priests were there to play in Israel. They, this is the stuff that gets outlined in those chapters of the book of Leviticus that very few of us read. But skin conditions and diagnosing skin conditions used to be the priest's responsibility. Now, that, I can tell you, friends, that particular class in Bible college uh, is, is no longer available. But um, the basic idea was this. If you developed a skin disease... You would go to the priest, you would present yourself, you would show them your rash, and then they would diagnose it, and then they would say, you're either clean and it's fine, or you're unclean and you need to go to the edge of the community for the sake of the community. And then if you had recovered, you would come back to the priest, re-present yourself, see, I'm fine now, and then the priest would declare you as clean, and then people knew you were safe to re-engage with. Does this make sense? So it's an official stamp of either infected or not infected. That's, that's the basic role that the priest was playing here. And Jesus sending these men to the priest was going to have two effects. One is that they would be declared clean and could re-engage with the community. So when they presented themselves to the priest, their leprosy had left. They were healed from it. The priest would see that and say, you are clean, you can come back and rejoin society. The second effect is it would give the priests the opportunity to witness Jesus at work in the world, to see what Jesus was doing. And as we are going to see, this is exactly how Jesus starts to come into conflict with this community, with the religious community. The social order, as we will soon find out, is kind of working for the priests. And they're not too interested in seeing that changed. To the degree that they are going to participate with Rome in order to erase Jesus. Jesus is healing indiscriminately, and he is including indiscriminately, and this is going to become a problem. So what we want to see here, what I want to point out to you is the contrast between people's ability to see God at work and for some of us, our inability to see God at work. And one thing to note here is the wideness of Jesus' grace. Should be noted that Jesus decided to heal all 10 men, regardless of whether they were willing to demonstrate gratitude or not. One of the scandalous things about the kingdom of heaven is its offer to everyone. Everyone. 
There are no categories of people that are excluded from God's offer of healing. That stands in stark contrast to every nation on earth. You aren't included anywhere you choose to go. But Jesus is making this offer in contrast to all human societies to everyone. The only people who will be excluded are people who choose to be excluded. That is nuts, folks. We don't see stuff like that in existence, and yet here it is in the middle of this world. Seeing God at work in the world is a first and critical step in participating in God's work in the world. Not seeing or recognizing God at work in the world uh, could be an indicator that you are buying into the social order and benefiting it, benefiting from it somehow. There are none so blind as the person who does not want to see. So now let's talk about insiders versus outsiders. So now we come to the point in the story where Luke springs his trap on the unwitting reader. The key detail he kept hidden for the whole story, right up until the end, is that the tenth man, the one that returned, was not from Israel, but from Samaria. So why is this such a big deal that it was from Samaria? Well, this division between Judah and Samaria, Israel and Samaria, goes back to just after Solomon was king. And the kingdom divided into the north, which became known as Samaria, and the south, which became known as Judah. The northern kingdom was characterized by idol worship and following foreign gods. The south was seen as the last bastion of true and faithful worship of God. The center of worship in Samaria was Mount Gerizim. And the center of worship in Israel was the temple in Jerusalem. These are starting to be different religions. These are starting to be different countries, even though they used to be the same group of people. And to the readers of this, this book is not being circulated among a Samaritan community. It's being circulated literally in Jerusalem to Jewish and Gentile Christians. And to the Jewish readers... The idea that a Samaritan was anything other than a traitor to God and God's plan for Israel was totally inconceivable. The title of the parable of the good Samaritan to these folks would have been an, an oxymoron. There's no such thing. And yet we find stories like this throughout the Old and New Testaments, places where the power and goodness of God is recognized by outsiders who should have no business recognizing the power and goodness of God. And we see insiders, people you would think would know that God is at work and they can't see it. 
And sometimes it's precisely because of your insider status that it makes it hard for you to see God at work. This is one of the contrasts that that Jesus is presenting here, that Luke is outlining here. So there's a couple things I want to pay attention to in this contrast. One is the question, who owns God? Who owns God? There is a sense in which religious systems eventually attempt to lay claim to owning God. Once people believe that they own God, something weird starts happening. God starts agreeing with them about everything. God starts agreeing with them about who's in and who's out. God knows who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And weirdly, it lines up exactly with what that community thinks is going on. People who lay claim to ownership of God know that God always takes their side in war and conflict. It's it's amazing. And people in this position are often completely oblivious to when God uh, begins to work in a brand new way. And that's exactly what we're seeing Jesus doing here. God working in a brand new way. Now, this phenomenon of trying to own God is so well entrenched that it is not an uncommon question for Christians all over the globe to ask themselves this question. Does Christianity belong exclusively to the white Western world? Christians in in African nations ask this question. Christians in South America ask this question all the time. Why do they ask this question? Well, it seems as if current Christianity seems to be dominated by the white Western world. Although, friends, that is changing at, in a way that maybe you aren't aware. The average Christian is not a white male like me. It's a Spanish-speaking woman in a favela in South America or Brazil. That's the average Christian. But this phenomenon of, of, of uh, uh, asking this question persists. So the simple answer, of course, is no, nobody owns God. The Bible is very clear about that. And the authenticity of Christian expression outside the Western world testifies to the fact that no one owns God. God has been worshipped freely before there even was a Western world. You, you know that, right? Like, that, that, that this religion has, has spread all over the planet. While my German ancestors were, were uh, you know, running around in the forest and didn't know anything about God, God was being worshipped in Africa, in Egypt in specific, in, in, in uh, Ethiopia.
But there is a tendency for insiders to begin to believe that they own God. And so we have to become vigilant because what this story is doing is warning you if you have insider status and God does a new thing, be careful. You might not see it when it's right in front of you. So then finally, who are the people of God? So if no one owns God, who are the real people of God? Well, this episode of ministry teaches us that the real people of God are the people who recognize and respond to God. The last time I spoke, I talked about a mutual back and forth between us and God. And I mentioned that many of us start out loving God because of what God can do for us. And as we go further down the the road with God, we give more of ourselves to God because of the the depth of his love. We're, we're, We're caught up in it. And so we give a part of ourselves to God, and God hands that back to us, transformed and changed. And then we take a look at what God has given us, and we want to give it back to God. And he takes it, and he transforms it, and he gives it back to us. And there's an ongoing interrelatedness. There's a mutuality to the Christian faith. And you learn to give yourself more completely to God and to others. You begin to actually resemble Jesus in the way that you live, in the way that you walk through the world. And you notice that these 10 men start their journey loving Jesus for what Jesus could do for them. But only one Only one turns back to offer praise to God. And notice what that tenth man receives. He receives healing. Yes, all of them did. But when he responds, he responds with thanksgiving. There's something that went into him and is now coming out of him. And he brings that back and he offers it to Jesus. And Jesus gives him a place at his feet. And then that man receives that place at Jesus' feet and responds with praise. And then Jesus offers him the chance to rise and go and live in faith. And that man heads out. And I assume that this mutuality continued through that man's life. All right, so we've taken a look at what this passage has to teach us about the kingdom of heaven. What we know is that Jesus is king of the oppressed. He intends to bring total healing to this world, not just healing for our spirits, not just healing for our body, but healing the very systems that destroy us. We also know that there are people who see what Jesus is offering and people who don't see what Jesus is offering. And this seeing and not seeing is going to be a very important feature of the story going forward. 
And then finally, we see that Jesus has upended who the insiders and outsiders are. God freely offers God's self to any people that choose God. People become the people of God by joining in this ongoing interrelatedness with God. A call and response. A giving and receiving cycle. And none of us own this giving and receiving cycle. We can only participate in it. None of us own this church. None of us own the table that is at the center of our church, the communion table. None of us own Easter. None of us own the resurrection. None of us own the Bible. None of us own God. But God will give God's self freely to anyone who responds. So what I want to invite you into this morning is do you hear God calling to you? Do you see the healing that's possible for you? Do you have something that you need to bring to Jesus this morning? Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize your kingship. We recognize how you have made us. We recognize that we live in a world that's in deep, deep trouble. And we need you, Lord. Master, have mercy on us. Amen. Amen.